Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. This is a historic episode of this podcast. We've been at this for about a year and a half at this point, and in all the time we've been doing it, we've never had a guest in the introduction, nor have we been graced with the presence of Grace Weinstein. On a scale of one to 10, how proud are you of being a co-creator of Helen High Water? Oh, it's probably 11. Right. Broke the scale. One of the best things I ever did. How often does somebody say to you, I can't believe you're associated with that piece of shit podcast. Heilman really made a fool of himself this week. Long pause. This is too long. Less often than I would like to say. (laughs) I would love to get a little flame under this train to keep it going. But um, no, I'm very proud. I was thinking about you this week because as people don't know Grace, Grace is a huge music head. And for someone as young as she is, because she's like 12 or whatever she is, and she knows a lot about music. 13, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm one year off. She knows a lot about music that's not from her era. And I wondered as I was listening to the excellent series on Sirius XM by our guest this week, Bob Crawford, who's the bassist in the Avid Brothers. It's called Concerts of Change. And it's about all of these famous concerts down through the history of rock music, starting with the concert for Bangladesh and then running through Live Aid and all these other shows. I wonder, like, Grace, do you know any of these people? Like Bob Geldof, you know, who's part of this? Does this mean anything to your generation? Or is that so ancient that you're like, what the fuck? Why is this guy talking about this? I would say two things can be true. It is ancient history to people of my age, which is the Gen Z millennial cusp generation. But I worked for a woman in high school who helped plan Woodstock. And she was kind of like my musical fairy godmother who opened the door to this world that I would have never gotten to know had it not been for her. I kind of went in my crazy punk phase and then my crazy indie alt phase and ended up here on this podcast with you, actually. So, yes, yes. I do. I am familiar. So Bob and I have, have known each other for a long time and, and we have a lot to talk about. But I wasn't sure how this was going to turn out when he went on this like basically like a year long deep dive into this history. But he basically got everybody, Roger Daltrey from The Who to talk about Live Aid and you know the incredible interviews with, with Geldof, who's kind of a, a almost except for one other person is kind of a singular figure in putting all this stuff together and kind of fusing music and humanitarian and political causes. The other figure is Bono, who I will say it was like Bob's great white whale was how can I get Bono? And I played a small part of making that happen, which I'm very proud of. And it's a really interesting to listen to. I'm talking about Bono. I think you're going to like the podcast. I think given your interests, I think you're going to like this episode. Uh, Absolutely. I anticipate liking it. And I think that it's something that my generation will actually feel inspired by because the rock music that we have right now isn't the rock music that we had then, which is to say it stood for something. It had a message. It inspired people, you know, outside of just like an amazing guitar line, but it had a cultural message that people wanted to engage with. And I think people of my generation are really lacking that. So this can clearly bring us back in in a really interesting way. It's funny. We end up talking on the podcast a little bit about Stand Up for Ukraine, which Global Citizen did this, Mm. this virtual benefit concert in April. Billie Eilish is in this thing and Madonna and Elton John and Bono and Edge from U2 and a bunch of other people, right? Each one would do a song on their own social media platforms. They claim on their website, they've raised $10 billion for Ukrainian refugees, which is unbelievable and fantastic. But 
I didn't even notice that it was happening. And I asked Bob, is there going to be some big Ukrainian refugee benefit like Live Aid? And he's like, no, I think we're past that. We'll never have it again. Would your generation go to Wembley and in Giant Stadium and like hundreds of thousands of people if there was a show like that? I would think yes, In a right? heartbeat. In a heartbeat. I've been to Global Citizen Festival multiple times and it takes place in Central Park, but it's just like this big corporate capitalist affair. <laughs> so it kind of strips it of the meaning that you're looking for where it's like, you know, almost a grassroots organized, we're all here, we're all in it together kind of vibe. So I think people our age are looking for a thing to gather around and experience music together again, but clock's ticking and we don't have it. The last thing I'll say is about Bob, he's just like one of the sweetest people I know. And if you're an Abbott Brothers fan, there's a little discussion in here in the middle of the podcast about the Abbott Brothers and, and how Bob got into the band and what they do. They're almost like a kind of Grateful Deadish band at this point, have an incredibly loyal audience, Americana music that's really mm-hmm. kicks ass. They do great shows and they're fantastic. And Bob is also a deeply, deeply devout Christian, partly because of the journey that he's been on, he and his wife with their young daughter, Hallie, who had a brain tumor when she was just a little, little kid. And it is also a special needs child who is one of the most delightful human beings I've ever met on planet Earth. And when you hear Bob talk about Hallie and her journey and what it's meant to him and how it connects him in a lot of ways to some of the things that he cares most about in this, the spirit of humanitarianism and activism that's in Concerts of Change, I defy you, I defy you to end this podcast with your eyes dry. It's a, it's a moving, moving thing. That's one of the things that we don't get enough of here on this show. I like it when people cry. Grace, you're a crier, right? You, you tear up oh, pretty easily. If you need somebody to cry on the show, call me back every week. So uh, Grace Weinstein, thank you for coming on. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you can sit back, as I know Grace will be, and tune in, turn on, and listen to the entire thing as we talk to Bob Crawford, basis of the Avid Brothers and creator, author of Concerts of Change, here on Hell on High Water. So we're here with Bob Crawford. Bob, my friend, the basis of the Avid Brothers, and now the creator and host of a remarkable, utterly delightful, I mean, just for people of our age, Bob and I are basically the same age. I'm a little older. For people of our age, this series he's got going on SiriusXM called Concerts of Change, the Soundtrack of Human Rights, which we'll talk all about today, is incredible. Bob, welcome. Thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I wanted to play that because I think in some ways... I'm a massive Peter Gabriel fan, as I know you are. When that thing came out, that's a group that's called Playing for Change. So there are musicians all around the world playing different parts of some iconic song. And when that that one came out in 2021 in the middle of the pandemic, it's sitting there on YouTube right now, Bob, with millions of views, right? For the song that Peter Gabriel, who barely performs anymore, is barely anywhere in the world now, you know, pulls these people together. That's Yo-Yo Ma that you hear. And that song is now still, you can make a video about it in 2021 and millions of people watch it on YouTube. And it speaks to, I think, some of the central themes of Conscious of Change. And Peter Gabriel is such a important 
character in the concerts of change story is if you listen you find out and across many decades across a few decades but the idea came from john if i said to you what was the music of civil rights movement you would say without blinking an eye you'd say bob dylan you might say nina simone you might say sam cook if i said well what about the vietnam war you would say Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and you would say Janis Joplin and so many, so many, so many. If I said, well, what happened in the 1980s? It might take a second, not for you, but for many, it might take a second. And I thought- For normal people. <laughs> so, so there's a couple threads to pull from. One, you can say, well, if you like American hardcore music, you might say uh, the Dead Kennedys, and you might say the Minutemen because that was a socially conscious movement that deserves a little investigation, I believe. But on a mass scale, on a big picture scale, it was Live Aid, it was Sun City, it was Do They Know It's Christmas, and the Amnesty International concerts. You know, and I'm 51, and I was at the Conspiracy of Hope Amnesty International concert in 1986 at Giant Stadium. So there was a bit of nostalgia, but as a historian, it was like, okay, so why did all this happen in the 80s, right? It's apartheid in South Africa. It's famine in Ethiopia. It's like America and Western artists looking outward around the world. And as we see as the series goes on, the world was getting smaller. You know, that's kind of one of the reasons why this happened at this moment. So then I, of course, I start doing my research and I'm, you know, do they know it's Christmas and Gildoff does that. And then, you know, we are the world happens and then it blossoms. The, the two are joined together in Live Aid. But I realized this isn't where it started. Like this moment of the 80s, I pinpoint the beginning with George Harrison and the concert for Bangladesh. Yeah. And from there, every event that happens learns from the one that happened before. Each one of these episodes, six episodes of this show, started rolling in March. They come out every other Tuesday. So the fourth episode on Sirius, what's the station on Sirius that they play on? It's volume 106. Volume 106. It is the Music Talk channel. And that episode, the fourth episode in the series, is going to be dropping on the same day as this podcast becomes available, which is Tuesday, May 3rd. And there's also a way, if you're a Sirius subscriber, you can go back and listen to them all and binge them, right? Yes, if you have the SXM app, which is the SiriusXM app, you yep. can type in Concerts of Change and the whole series is there. Plus, at the end of every episode, there is a raw interview. I did 33 interviews for this series over the course of a year. So yeah. you can get a full interview with Bono or a full interview with Jackson Brown or a full interview with Bob Gildoff. So... Uh, Roger Daltrey as well. Will the John Heilman interview ever be available there? Or that would just be memory hold as if it never took place. We are working <laughs> on a, a sister series that is more about the history and the politics for yeah. POTUS Channel. So more mm. to come on that. Because Bob and I have known each other for a while and our friends, I was lucky enough to be interviewed for the show. And it's always weird to hear myself on these things, but I actually sort of enjoyed the way I got used because the things that I was most enthused about talking about, they ended up in the show. And we'll get to a couple of those. It is the case. The first episode is basically like the preamble 
to Geldof, right? Geldof is sort of stands alone in importance, I would say, in terms of taking these things and making them, right? And the first episode is more about the kind of influences, the the precursors. As you say, you go back to the concert of Bangladesh. And I don't care how often Rabbi Shankar tells me that like we all have to be patient, listen to that Indian music. It slowed things down there at the concert of Bangladesh. I'll just say, like, there's no way to get around it. That sitar music, it's not my jam, man. Yeah, I do like the sitar music, but it's for a different purpose, right? <laughs> this is classical music, right? Yes. This is Indian classical music. So he might as well had a string quartet right. play Death and the Maiden. At Madison Square Garden in a room filled with marijuana smoke. If you see the video of the concert of Bangladesh, it right. is a stoned room. People are high in that right. room and he's in there going... They want to hear... All things must pass. Yeah, they're looking for Eric Clapton, Billy Preston, Bob Dylan... Leon George Russell. Harrison, they don't yeah. want to sit through this stuff. Yeah, yes. you got it. So that's there. That's the first kind of big one of these benefit concerts. And you walk through, you give us in that that episode, you give us a little primer on things that people have forgotten about, like the No Nukes show that Jackson Brown sort of organized years later. You really land, though, on the music that we played at the beginning. As I said, the Biko version that we just heard is a recent one. But the original, Peter Gabriel, is where the Africa focus first starts. It's the first Western artist who basically says, here's a political issue in South Africa. And he makes this song called Biko. Talk about that and, and the kind of the impact that it had on a lot of people, both in terms of getting people interested in what was going on in South Africa, but also artists who were like, hey, that gives me an idea for something else I can do. Peter Gabriel was always influenced by world music. And one of his goals as an artist was to introduce world music to the Western world. And in that, he was just very aware of what was going on in areas of the world like South Africa. And this is consequential for a few reasons. In the mid to late 70s in England, anti-apartheid is becoming an issue that it's gaining traction with young people, right? And Christians and, you know, in the church, it's gaining momentum there. But in the United States, it begins to exist in the black community. And it becomes tied in with the black nationalism of yes. the early 1970s. There was a kinship. Stephen Biko was part of the black consciousness movement. And he's that next generation from Nelson Mandela. So Biko rises to power in the movement while Mandela and his contemporaries are in jail. So there was this synergy between the black consciousness movement, the Black Panthers, Blacks in America embraced their African heritage and their culture, and it became a bit of a political force. So looking back, that's what makes, I think, Biko consequential. Looking forward is you had a young Steve Van Zandt sitting in a movie theater, yeah. and he hears the song Biko playing in the theater, I guess before or after the film he was watching, and he runs into the projectionist's office and bangs on the window and says, hey, who is that? What is that? And the guy says, it's Peter Gabriel. It's Biko. Yeah. And that got his wheels turning about what was happening in South Africa. Yeah, we're going to talk about little Stephen and Sun City a little later, Bob. But first, I want to get back to Bob Geldof, who, as I mentioned, is sort of like a singularly important character in this whole story. You know, in 1984, it's Geldof who writes the song, Do They Know It's Christmas, and pulls together this like super group of British rock and pop stars to record that song. And he calls the group Band-Aid. And that's really, really gets things rolling. And, you know, the first crazy thing about it all is that it's Geldof who does this. You know, Bob, you're, you're a little bit younger than me, but the ground you cover in episodes two and three and four of Concerts of Change pretty much tracks precisely 
with the time that I was in college. It's the mid-1980s. And, and the way that we all knew Bob Geldof then was as the lead singer of the Boomtown Rats, kind of a British punk band who had really one and only one hit record that anyone in the United States knew. Uh, a song came out a few years before that. It was called I Don't Like Mondays. You know, tell me why I don't like Mondays. You know this song, right? Even now, people, people still know that song today. But, you know, no one thought of Bob Geldof as someone who would be in the middle of a thing like this. So, like, when Do They Know It's Christmas came out in early December of 84, everybody was like, Bob Geldof in the middle of this? Really? So I want to start by playing the sound of Geldof from your series, talking about exactly the moment a few months before that, October 1984, that he got pulled deep into activism. I come home one evening worried about what's going to be the future. And I sit down in front of the TV, turn on the news, and I see some of the worst images that that they still are sort of seared in my mind. The next day, I called up um, a rock show, which my wife was the host of, with Jules Holland from Squeeze. I said, well, let's try and get something together. Let's call everyone. So that was Band-Aid. I think it's amazing to me that, that a lot of people you know, would not necessarily know that Bob Geldof's wife was a woman named Paul Yates, who now uh, dearly departed. She died some years ago of a heroin overdose, I believe. And she, at the time, was the host of a show in Britain. I know these things because I'm a weirdo, as I've said before, called The Tube with Jules Holland from Squeeze. Jules Holland then later on host the Jules Holland Show, which is a huge thing in British culture. But here's Bob Geldof basically Seeing images of the famine in Ethiopia, the result of, you know, what at that point was the longest civil war playing out in the world at that point, and the images he said that were deeply upsetting to him of all these distended bellies and kids dying in their parents' arms. And he, you know, unlike many people who watch those things and are disturbed by them and do nothing about it, Bob Bildoff says, let's put on a show, basically, or let's go make a single. And I just want you to talk about that, how that just what were your impressions of Geldof from interviewing him and how he managed in his way to pull all these people together? So if you mean interviewing Bob Geldof by sitting there while he spoke one long 90-minute sentence <laughs> yeah. with me sheepishly interrupting him four times, yeah, yeah, that was the interview. Right. In incredible. Incredible. His gift of recall and poetry and understanding of politics and world economics not to mention like the history of punk rock, all of that in that 90 minute conversation he weaved together. So it was absolutely incredible and his willingness to talk. You talked about his late ex-wife, Paula Yates. Very sad. He also lost a daughter. And so for those that don't know, Gildoff has a reputation of being a blowhard. You know, he doesn't take any shit as you might say. The Boomtown Rats were a Dublin band who came up off the streets and he was an amazing, go on YouTube and watch some old late 1970s, early 80s Boomtown Rats concert footage. The man was like electricity on stage. We didn't really know them very well in the United States. They never got very big here. Right. But I found him, when I interviewed him, to be tender. <laughs> there was there was a tenderness to him that I thought it was just really beautiful. I don't know. I really enjoyed that time I spent with him. Bob is a blowhard. 
Someone refers to him as being kind of a silver tongue devil, right? And my question, which was, you know, why he did what he did, but also how he got these people together. I just want to say for the record, if people don't know, and we'll play a little bit of this in a second, but Phil Collins is in this Boy George and Simon Laban from Duran Duran and George Michael from Wham. On the other side, you got Bono from YouTube making a very early appearance when they were still not that big at that point. Paul Weller from the Style Council, previously of the Jam, Sting from the Police, of course, the Bananarama women are in there, right? It's a very unusual mix of people. It's basically all British rock stars, but some of them are close to the edge of punk and some of them are very, very, very pop. And I think the fact that he was able to convince them all to do this together with the possibility of maybe getting a little uncool on their sleeves, on their shoes, so to speak, it speaks to his power of his persuasion as much as anything else and his belief in this cause. And he was kind of amazingly able to motivate this group to come together and do this thing. Right, exactly. Because he had a foot in every world, right? He's wondering if the best part of his life is over because the Boomtown Rats had an album about to come out that was not going to do very well. Right. And everyone knew it wasn't going to, and like they were on their decline at that point, but he still had this reputation from years of being in the scene. But you know, his co-collaborator on do they know it's Christmas is a guy named Midjure. And Midjure, if Bob Gildoff is on his way down, Midjure and Ultravox are on their way up. Up. Yeah. Right. And Gildoff knows Midjure, has a prior relationship with him. Why? Because they shared the stage at the Secret Policeman's Other Ball in 1981. Gildoff, and this will be in episode two, mm -hmm. but Gildoff takes part in this Amnesty International, essentially a comedy benefit that they bring in musical artists to perform what we would think of acoustically or stripped down. It's the first time Sting performs without the police. Phil Collins performs by himself without justice. with Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and Bob Gildoff. He's a late addition to the bill. The man who filmed the concert was a guy named Julian Temple, a film director. He filmed the Sex Pistols' great rock and roll swindle. And he tells one of the producers of the show, Martin Lewis, you need some piss and vinegar in this show. And he suggests Johnny Rotten. And Martin says, <laughs> hell no, I don't want Johnny Rotten. So he thought about who else has some attitude to him. And he invites Bob Gildoff. Bob Gildoff tells him to F off, but shows up. And in the encore, you have all these artists, including people like Sheena Easton, mm. uh, singing Bob Dylan's <laughs> I Shall Be Released. Gildoff wants to be nowhere near. Yeah. You talk about not wanting to get the pop on your shoes. He yeah. doesn't want to be anywhere near Sheena Easton. So he gets paired up with Midjure. And if you, again, watch this clip on YouTube, they are dancing. They're having a good time. They're singing. They form a friendship. So when... Midjore is on the show with Paula and Gildoff calls in. He says, Hey, Midge, do you want to do something about this? Right. So they get together and write, do they know it's Christmas? Yeah. It's quite a story that the connections between all these guys, one of the things I learned on Concept of Change is this connection between Gildoff and Bono. And Bono is going to come up a number of times in this podcast because A, we're both big fans. And also in a lot of ways, the common thread through a lot of these things, Bono kind of makes appearances in almost every one of these moments. And then is the only That's one right. who later on goes on and tries to take the artistic impulse to be involved in politics and humanitarian causes and tries to professionalize it and becomes a major figure in the world of policy and advocacy and, and lobbying later on. And that's the last episode of your show. But this is the first time we see Bono, right? And you have a great interview with Mark Goodman from MTV about this, where 
for anybody who remembers, do they know it's Christmas? Well, I'll play, let's play just the beginning of it. And then I'm going to want to play Geldof. And then I want to play the part that's relevant here. Cause I'm, this is the kind of thing that I'm going deep on with you, Bob, because you know how I feel about these things. So just to remind everybody of what do they know it's Christmas sounds like, let's play SOT number six, please. Can I say two quick things? Of course, of course. One is you hear Paul Young. Yes. Uh, oh my God. Who sings the first line. Who when Every we time got, you go away. Huge. Yeah, he had a few good songs. Yes, he did. That was supposed to be David Bowie, <gasps> who couldn't make it. <sighs> who couldn't make it. Now, two, Boy George. You mentioned Boy George. Yes. Boy George, that morning, was in a hotel in New York City. <gasps> and Gildoff calls him and says, where are you? He says, I'm in New York City, probably two in the morning. He says, you need to get your ass on the Concord and get over here. We're doing this recording and you need to be a part of it. Damn. And he showed up completely jet lagged, but uh, did a little dance with Simon Laban in front of the press. And yeah. And still sounding like Boy George. Yeah, he reminds you of what a great voice Boy George had. I mean, just like one of the biggest pop stars in the world at the time. And another one of these people who you put him next to Simon LeBond, seems totally fine. Put him next to the guys from U2, maybe not quite as as natural a fit. But that leads to part of the and appeal they didn't want of this to do thing. it, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And and so now we get to my deep dive, which revolves around Bono and U2. In the fall of 1984, the band had just released its fourth album. The Unforgettable Fire and had just had its first like real hit in the US, which is Pride in the Name of Love. But even so, Bono, not yet a star, still largely unknown, but he's pals with Geldof. And, you know, they're both from Dublin. And Geldof is like nine or ten years older, and and they have this kind of brother thing going on. And Geldof has written a line for Bono to sing that many people, when they heard it, were like, Man, Bono saying that on this record, is that right? Mark Goodman from MTV says that on your show. And a lot of people thought it was, seemed a little off. You know, the line in question is when Bono sings, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you, right? Which then this song that's about open-heartedness and being, you know, this moment Christmas single, care about these starving Ethiopians. Tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. And it turns out that Bono didn't love the line either to the point where he goes to Geldof and tries to get him to change it. And... Truly, one of my favorite moments in Conscious of Change is this moment where Geldof is talking with you, Bob, about the fight that he had with Bono over that line. So let's listen to that right now. And Bono comes to me privately and says, I'm not sure this is what you mean to say. And I said, it is. And he said, I think it's a bit much. He said, it's too direct. I said, Bono, I watched that television. I've got my six-month-old baby daughter sitting beside me, I saw mums and dads give their last grain to their children. Can you do that? I saw, I watched them die while I sat at my dinner. Thank God it's not us. And knowing that it's not us, then the obligation is to go and do something for them. He says, okay, okay, you know, 
but he's, he's iffy about it. So we come to his line and the song's building up. And he just, you know, that boy, he, he, he sucks his breath in and he closes his eyes and he just roared it. There's a true anger in the voice, a true understanding that it's not right, that it's okay for us and not for them. That's just not right. And that was it. No, no second to go. That's it. Stop. He doesn't want to sing it. He doesn't want to sing it. Does not want to sing it. No. I love this exchange because Geldof's going, you know, fuck you. <laughs> sing the song. Sing, sing this line. Just do it. Right. And he brings him around. And he keeps saying, can I change it? And Geldof says to quote, no, you can't fucking change it. Sing, <laughs> sing the line. And Geldof will tell you today it was a, yeah, it's a pop song. It's a pop song. And you know, but we have to do this. You've got to do something. When you see this injustice, you've got to do something. I think that explanation that Geldof gives as to why, I tried to answer it for you, and I think you may have even included it in the show. Like, I tried to answer why, once you thought about it, what was they were trying to convey with that line, which sounded on first glance like, like why is Bono singing that? And you can understand why he didn't want to sing it. And yet, the power of it is there. And I, the last thing I want to do is I do want to play just so you can get to hear it if you've forgotten again what Bono sounded like at this moment. It's still relatively an unknown singer at this point. And man, has he crushed this. Let's play that. And you could say today, listening back, you say, well, that's cliche Bono, typical Bono. But that's why that is today. Like that was him discovering himself. And what a platform for the voice too, because he does crush it, right? And actually, if you look at the writing of that entire thing, I mean, I know he actually, Golov talks to you about this a little bit about, I think Sting complains also mm -hmm. because the bitter sting of tears, <laughs> yeah. the clanging chimes of doom, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. It's like, they're all just cliches stacked up on top of each other. And yet the song really did usher in kind of a new era. And one of the things that was so powerful in the series in Conscious of Change is listening to some people reflect on why. And it was this fact that it would never, you point out, never crack the top 10, but it was all over MTV that Christmas. And MTV was in its absolute heyday at that moment. And someone points out that these were all the MTV acts. Chris Conley. It was like all of the MTV acts in one place on MTV at a moment when MTV was at its zenith, Chris Conley, MTV alum, but it's, it's really true, right? I mean, it was not, you didn't hear that on the radio, but you saw it all over MTV at that moment. It was almost like a British Christmas single and kind of thing. And you saw it, right? And you saw it, John. There's another story behind this story of why this happened when it did, and that's technology. Today, we have social media and it's changing us as people. Well, satellite technology like CNN goes on the air January 1st, 1980. MTV goes on the air August 1st, 1981, I believe it is. Right. And ESPN, like this is the beginning of the fragmentation of the media. It's the very beginning, but it's also homogenizing the human experience yep. as it's fracturing the human experience. And 
MTV changed like it boosted record sales. Like record companies were never making more money than they did in 1984. They were selling so many records, they had to come out with a new way to quantify it. It was called multi-platinum, which comes out in 1984 because of MTV, because of all of this is happening at the same time, which I think is just really incredible. And yeah. Live Aid, you know, is the representative of that. Well, that's what I wanted to get to. And I'm going to skip over We Are the World. Of course, the American version of Do They Know It's Christmas becomes We Are the World, which is another group of enormous stars. Icons. I would also say a much sappier song. It's more sentimental than Do They Know It's Christmas. And it's not a song you would ever go back to and play now. Probably wouldn't, at least. I wouldn't. Let's put it that way. I wouldn't. Bob, you listen to We Are the World anytime around your house just well, for like for the hell of it when you're not working on the series? Let me tell you, my daughter, who you know of, she is... Uh, special needs, 12 years old. She goes on these YouTube rabbit holes. She just mm. finds herself in some crazy places on YouTube, right? Yeah. One of the places she found probably about the time, maybe a little bit before I started this was We Are The World. It just right. popped up on her iPad and she knows every word to the song, We Are The World. And if you heard her sing it, John, you may feel differently. I would love it forever. If you want to send me a, an MP3 of Hallie singing uh, We Are the World, we will adopt that as a theme song in our house. But okay. uh, and, until then. Sounds good. But yes, yes. The Do They Know It's Christmas was more underground. It yes. was grittier. These in We Are the World were the established royalty of American music, right? Yeah. And, and when you say royalty, Bob, you mean royalty. I mean, Harry Belafonte sees Band-Aid happen and says, let's do an American version of Do They Know It's Christmas. Pretty soon, Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie are writing it, and Quincy Jones is producing it, and Stevie Wonder and Tina Turner and Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan, and basically like everyone who's anyone in American music is singing on this song. But the truly bonkers thing is how fast all of this happened. I mean, it still blows my fucking mind. You know, you get from Bob Geldof watching the BBC in October of 1984 to Do They Know It's Christmas in December of 1984 to We Are the World in what, like March of 1985. And then to the summer of 1985, on both sides of the Atlantic, like everyone is all geared up for Live Aid, which is the biggest global broadcast then and today of any cultural event in the history of the world. Like you say, you see this momentum. It just takes over the music industry. And when you get to July 13th, 1985, the day of Live Aid, two concerts, 16 hours of music, two continents. There was also a pre-concert there in Australia, so some would say three. But a television viewership of two billion people. Is this the world's first viral moment, John? Well, it's certainly the world in which McLuhan's notion of the global village was first ever really like, it, like not a theory and not an idea and not a hypothesis, but like you could actually see it. Yeah, people say this about the Super Bowl and, you know, about certain things back in those days. When 60 million. You know, 60 million. Yes, yes. And it's like even back then when things had bigger ratings, obviously everything was more consolidated than there were only three American networks. You know, the BBC was the only thing in Britain. Even then, two billion televisions, two billion televisions. I, you know, I can tell you, you will find if you listen to episode three 
of Constitutive Change, you will hear a little bit of the conversation Bob and I had about this at the time because he was interested in the fact that I was on the floor at Wembley and, and we talked about <laughs> U2's, U2's breakthrough performance that they gave there. And I won't, I won't spoil that here. You should go listen to it if you care about an eyewitness account of it. You know, you said when you were a teenager, you were working in a grocery store or something. A you went next grocery door. Grocery store, yeah. And you went next door to watch it on TV. That's what people were doing. If you weren't lucky enough to be on the floor of Wembley or on the floor of JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, you were Bob Crawford going somewhere to find a TV because Live Aid's on. You know, everyone's going to watch Live Aid. And literally, it felt like every television in the world was turned to this one thing. We'll never see anything like that again, I don't believe. No, I was working my first job and I was recording it, of course, on three VHS tapes at home. And then I had a friend who contacted me and she said, yeah, my mother was, was going to kill me because I forgot to switch out the videotapes at one point that day. And then another a cousin <laughs> of mine's like, yeah, I, I still have those VHS tapes somewhere. Yeah. And that just speaks to the moment that we were in. It's a wild thing to remember it. And of course, when you say it's the world, the first viral moment, it's the only reason I hesitate to say yes is that, you know, it's it's hours, many hours long, right, on two continents. And I love the fact that, I mean, if you're a person who knows anything about these things or was a fan, which is, again, two billion people watched this at the time, so this is not an exclusive club, people remember that Phil Collins played at both, that he played in London and then took the Concord over and played in Philadelphia before the end of the show. Kind of an incredible thing. Apparently, as he said, it was the only way he would do it is if he got to do both. So hats off to Phil Collins. There was a lot of things that people remember, but I think there are two that you kind of focus on that I want you to say a little bit about without spending too much time on it, just because I do want people to go and listen to the accounts of these things. But you, I think mm -hmm. it's right. You assert that Queen's set in London is now remembered as having been a high point, And you also point to the who just talk about those two and why you think they've endured so much. Well, the who they hadn't played together in a few years. Yeah. They had broken up. They, and Roger Daltrey says we weren't a band. Yeah. They had Kenny Jones playing drums, who was the drummer for the Faces. Right, and Keith Moon died. And had died. It yeah. was like they weren't f feeling being a band, but I think that performance kind of brought them back a little bit. You know, Silver Tongue Bob Geldof said, it's not about you. This right. isn't about you. This is about the cause. And I think that mattered for them. Here's what Daltrey said about putting the band back together, so to speak, to play at Live Aid. We weren't a band. We had, we had broken up. Keith Moon had died. We read about this thing going on and we talked about it. We said, but well, we aren't a band and Pete didn't want to get back together. And of course, Slippery Tongue Bob Geldof gets on the phone. You suddenly realise it wasn't about the bands. It wasn't about anything other than trying to get the music to raise awareness for a situation that was going on that in the modern world shouldn't really be happening. You know, it's a thing you can't refuse, really. It would only be your ego that got in the way. This is an important point that Gildoff was purely focused on getting people on that stage who would make other people give money. Right. Yeah. That was what it was all about. That's why he went to LA to be a part of the We Are the World. It was just, what do I got to do to make more people give more money? You know, here's Roger Daltrey, not someone who you think of as being necessarily a profoundly other directed humanitarian figure. He's a classic rock star, you know, and here he is. He gets on the phone with Bob Geldof and he's like, oh, can I can't really resist here. He's managed to make me feel like if I don't do this, I'm just an egomaniac. And even though I might be an egomaniac, I still got to go do this thing. And the band comes back together. <laughs> just say a little bit about they're Queen all egomaniacs. Then, well, yes, they are. They, they say it about rock stars, yeah. Bob, and which we'll talk about momentarily. Yes. But what about Queen? <laughs> why, why does Queen live in our memory so much about that show? That performance is epic. And people still talk about it. 
It is. Yeah, I think that the two biggest performances, particularly at Wembley, are Queen and U2, if I had to pick two. that you, And you will let them go listen to your play-by-play <laughs> of the U2 performance. But Queen, I think looking back as a historian, or it's like the time capsule, what one thing will people always remember about Live Aid? And it's going to be Freddie Mercury. It's going to be that Queen performance that was so well rehearsed. You watch that performance, you think to yourself, oh, they were the biggest band in the world. But they weren't the biggest band in the world. But that performance solidified their place in history. And I feel like it's more powerful today than it was when it happened. And I think it was pretty damn powerful when it happened. But I I think the myth of Queen... And the, the music has aged well. Yeah. And I think they're bigger today than they ever were, you know, when they were a band. Like the Beatles, maybe. I don't know. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Bob Crawford on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. Bob, I want to talk about you. Okay. I want to move away from Concerts of Change briefly and indulge in another in another small element of your life. Okay. I've heard you use the word historian a couple times, and you are a historian. You're obviously a, a music fan and a musician. There's that stand-up bass behind you back there. That's your your instrument that you play in a band called the Ava Brothers. There's a movie that Judd Apatow made about the Ava Brothers. It's called May It Last, and it tells the story in the words of the band members, including both of the Avids themselves, the brothers, Seth Avid and Scott Avid, they tell the story of how Bob Crawford ended up in the Avid brothers and with that instrument behind him, which apparently was like a little more of a pose at the beginning that was actually an instrument you knew how to play. So I want to play Bob Crawford joining the Avid brothers. At some point we we decided we really need some low end here. We need a stand up bass player. We need, you know, we need the sound, but we really need the look. I was going to school at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I was in a jazz guitar program, but I just started playing upright bass. We met in the Media Play parking lot, which is kind of like Best Buy. I got my bass out, and Scott and Seth pull up in a gold four-tour station wagon and get out, and they're wearing, like, flannel shirts and, like, cut-off shorts, and they've got long hair and weird facial hair. And, and we just started playing tunes. And we left, and Seth and I talked on the way home. Was like, that's, you know, seems good to, to me. And later we found out that he had probably played bass, like stand-up bass, a couple times. I mean, the guy had barely touched the instrument. I mean, I didn't find this out, for, like, probably for a good four, five, six years that it was a brand-new instrument to him. <laughs> I don't recall any of that. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't recall any of that. <laughs> I mean, Bob, come on, man. Like, you managed to become... I don't know if there's a better known stand-up bass player in music today than you, but you managed to hook up with the band that would become your closest friends, your meal ticket, all that stuff, all in one place, playing an instrument that you really didn't know how to play, but you looked good playing it, apparently. You know, just before that time, I was working in the film and video business. I was a PA and a boom operator, and it's a freelance world. You go from gig to gig. You might be working on a local car commercial today. ESPN may come in tomorrow to shoot some promos. You may be working on a movie of the week for Hallmark or something. And you learned to lie and apply. You lie and apply. Can you run a teleprompter? 
Yeah, I, I mm. can do that. Sure, sure. Can you run ENG Sound for Spot for Entertainment tonight? Yeah. Oh, sure, I can do that. Yeah, no problem. And sometimes you pull it off, and sometimes you don't. And that's the story of Bob Crawford. Sure, but you got to have like, look, I mean, fake it till you make it is another version of that, right? right? And you know, there are lots of things that if I'm asked, like, do I know how to scramble an egg, for instance, I could probably fake that, you know, I don't, that's all right. You know, if it came to playing an instrument in a band and I was asked to fake it till I make it, it would be very apparent very quickly that I was faking it and not making it. And yet you obviously had some musical aptitude, apparently. It also depends on who you're faking it for or with, because Scott, what Scott doesn't tell you is he was only playing banjo like a month, month or two longer than I was playing the bass. Yeah. So we were both just trying to figure it out. And after we met, I, I started teaching at the learning center that he was kind of scheduling lessons for, and he actually had a few banjo students and I had bass students and we were like one lesson ahead of our students often. And then I'd get these, you know, here I am almost 30 at this point, 29 years old. And then I'd get a 15 year old playing Jaco Pastorius walking in and I'd just tell him, I got nothing for you, man. You're great. I can't help you. You need to find somebody else. So you joined the band, you joined those guys. They were already playing music together, the, the brothers, Scott and Seth, and you're joining up in like 2001, right? So it's basically, you've been in the band 20 yeah. years, a little over 20 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. 21. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to talk about this that's not a crazy attempt at overgeneralization, but I mean, talk about what it's been like to be in, they're like, you know, you know the story of bands, Bob. The ones that last to be 20 years is like, you can, it's not one, you can, you need more than one hand to count them. But it's part of the reason, again, why we look at you two and are astonished, or the Rolling Stones and are astonished. And, and you guys are basically the, essentially an intact band that's played together a touring band. You guys are on the road, you're making albums, you're doing all this stuff. You also have a rich life outside the band, but but you guys have stuck together and been creatively productive, commercially viable for 20 years and have not broken up. Nobody's killed another member or tried to shove his brother in front of a bus. You have some of the problems that we've seen in some places. You know, how's that work? What's the thing that holds you all together and has made you guys as durable as you are? Oh, I think family for sure. And Scott and Seth, were always told by their parents that you guys need to be each other's best friends. And I think that that was extended to me and it's been extended to the other members of the group throughout the years. And I think that we learned to say no. You know, there have been times, then there were times earlier when we were, you know, now we're on the road 60 days a year. Well, there was a time before kids and families where we were just on the road constantly. And when you're on the road for 90 days straight or longer, that's when the fights happen. And that's when everybody gets tired and cranky and bad things happen. So we learned as our career continued on and then our personal lives you know, grew and extent wives and families and tragedy and cancer and divorces. And as all these things happened, we just were able to say, we'll say yes to this, this, and this, and we'll say no to this, this, and this. And I think some of the things we probably said no to, like we could be in a different situation, like as far as notoriety or something, but I don't think it matters to us because as long as we're making good music, as long as we are healthy enough to play and tour, you know, we watch Willie Nelson. We've, we've been so lucky. We've played like four years with Willie Nelson and his outlaw tour he does every year. And we watch him from the side of the stage at, you know, 86 years old. And we say, that's the goal. 
That's the goal. Like right. we're jumping around now. It's a dynamic show and there's high energy. Yeah. But at some point we want to be doing it long enough that just us up there sitting on stools <laughs> yes. playing songs are good enough. Rocky chairs. If you had to define genre wise, what's the description that I love the band, but I still can't really define it because you're a little bluegrass, you're a little country, you're right. a little rock, you're a little this, you're a lot of things, right? I think the simplest way is Americana. Yeah. Okay. And for people who like that genre, they know what that means. That's right. this big catch all that's everything from the band yes. to Wilco yes. to Willie Nelson yes. to, you know, Jason Isbell. It's some music that's influenced by roots. Graham Marcus a long time ago wrote a book about the old weird America. You know, he was always mm -hmm. obsessed with these bands all the way back to Robert Johnson and the early, you know, blues stuff. But the band was kind of iconic for him and in some early Randy Newman that they're connected to this older, weirder version of the country. Um, yeah. and, and you guys are like that. You seem like a band that I could have heard your music in 1995, 1985, 1975, 1965, and probably like 1875. And it still would have sounded basically like you guys are doing now which is yeah. part of the kind of eternal, timeless quality to it that brings people back to hear you guys, I think, again and again and again, which is the case with a lot of your fans. You see that they're deadheads, basically, for the Ava Brothers. Yeah, and I think that's something genuine, right? If you're tapped into, without getting too deep here, I think in humanity, right, there's a guttural response to when we see something that's genuine and true, we kind of latch onto it or we take note of it or it, it just feels different than other things. And I, I think that the lyrics that Scott and Seth write, the presentation of the music, there's something honest about it. It's simple, right? It's simple, yeah. but it's pure and it's true. I'm curious about this. I don't think we've ever even discussed this because I would never normally ask someone to discuss their art in this way, but I will with you now because I, you know, I went back and watched May at last. So that movie, you know, is 2017 and some chunk of it has to do with your guys' collaboration with Rick Rubin. Filmed in 2015, some of it. 2015. So it came out in 2017, right? And, you know, a band that's been around for 20 years, even if there's this kind of consistency to the kind of, that you were just describing, the kind of thematic and musical consistency, you still have to grapple with, obviously, you know, dry spells and, and a sense of like dead ends and a sense of, you know, where does the creative juice come from? How do you push yourselves? Where do you want to try to go? Do you want to try to go someplace different? I mean, you tell the story of the Avid Brothers as a band and as an artistic force. Is there an inflection point at some place that you point to and say, this is where things changed, where we were in crisis and then we had to turn the corner and we reached a new place, uh, got to a different elevation? Does that factor in or do you just kind of say, oh, you know, we're, we're a bunch of simple country musicians who like to make uh, pretty songs and we've been doing that all along? Uh, that doesn't seem right to me. It seems like there's something deeper going on. We had done everything ourselves up to emotionalism. And that's the album before, if, if someone you know, is familiar with the band, that was the album before we signed with Rick Rubin and we were vaulted into a, just another realm. We were exposed to, or we were given access to better tools yeah. and a broader palette from which to paint from. So prior to that, it was very handmade. You know, it still is quite handmade. Yeah. And that's the connection with Rick. I mean, I think that's what Rick sees in it. And Rick just is another member of the band, you know, when we're working together. Emotionalism, you know, we worked with a guy named Bill, Bill Reynolds, who was in Band of Horses. 
He's produced a lot of good records and a guy named Danny Kadar. And that was the beginning of giving over some of that control during emotionalism. But with Rick, we're working with a guy who created a good part of the musical landscape that we grew up in. Yes. Well, and he's obviously worked with every possible kind of band. And obviously, you know, going back to Beastie Boys and his early hip hop work, and he's worked with everybody. Johnny Cash. Tom Petty and, and Johnny Cash. There's no, no one that Rick hasn't worked with. Is he a lunatic? Is he a genius? Is he both? Is he mm. a guru? I mean, is he a, a God figure? Like he gets cast in all of those wildly eccentric gnomic in some ways, issuing forth cones of wisdom. You know, he obviously is very into meditation and spiritualism. Like what's the Bob Crawford thumbnail of Rick Rubin? The Rick Rubin I have come to know is a gentle soul. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's a very peaceful soul, maybe more in that guru, but there's not like ego coming off of him at all. Yeah. You know, I was talking about this the other day with someone. The first day of recording on what would become I and Love and You. Yeah. We're in Malibu, California. When we met Rick, we were taken to his house. So that's how we like got that first meeting. But this is our first day of recording with Rick Rubin. And you know how I learned how to play the bass <laughs> and how Scott learned how to play the banjo. You know, I I wouldn't consider myself a virtuoso at any at anything, let alone the the thing that I have used to make a living with. And there was like that imposter syndrome, right? That's what we call it now, right? Imposter syndrome. And we had never really played with drums, you know, and there's a song called Tin Man off of I Am Loving You. And Rick's like, you know, here's the intro. And he's like, just vamp on this. And he may have even called the band. He may have said like, (laughs) oh, like the band, like the band, you know, just, just vamp on this introduction and get loose and we do that for a while and they're like, come on in here. And we go in the booth and the engineer's like, yeah, you're not locking in with a kick drum. Yeah. You know, you're not in the pocket. It took a, a day or two or three to kind of, that wasn't coming. The intimidation factor wasn't coming from Rick. Right. That was coming from inside of me. And I would later learn a similar experience came inside of Scott and a similar experience was inside of Seth. And the point I'm trying to make is my experience with Rick is that here's a legend, but the intimidation isn't coming from him. It's coming from your realization that this is the guy who worked with Johnny Cash, worked with the Beastie Boys, worked with, you know, so on and so forth. So Rick is a loving caring man. He is all about the music and the song and what's going to make the song as good as that song can be. He'll tell you he doesn't know how to play an instrument, but no one knows feel and rhythm and has a knack for that better than Rick. And he's the greatest listener of all time. Right. His ear is just incredible, right? And there's a, there is a little kind of shaman quality. You listen to all the various people who worked with them. They all have this kind of attitude, which is what you're describing, which is he often says things that are very vague and often says things that are very intuitive. And it's not like a tech, he's not like Brian Eno, you know, he's not like a mad scientist, you know, in a technical sense. He's not like in that space. It seems more like almost like some form of therapy that he works his will on, on musicians to kind of make them find what they really are inside more than trying to take them someplace that's his idea. It's more like trying to make you figure out where you need to go yourself. 
And it's, if there's an idea, we have to try it. Yeah. Right. We have yeah. to go down the road to realize the road doesn't take us anywhere. Yeah. So it's always like, let's try this idea. And he'll say, this is a Rick, you know, paraphrase or quote pretty close to it. Like maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Right. Right. You know, I think about this also in the sense of you, because I think of that, like everything I've seen, I've watched the Rick, the Ruben documentaries and stuff. And it's like, there's a spiritual quality to him. He's famously, he's very interested in meditation and other things. And I think about it, you know, you are the square Avid brother. Everybody looks at Bob Crawford and go, you know, it's the guy who doesn't look like a, a hillbilly. You know, he's like a, the clean cut guy. He could be a, a guy working at the shop, right? right? Bagging your groceries still, even today, you know, even Perhaps, in your 50s. And that may be the future. <laughs> I doubt that. Or like at, uh, at Big Five Sporting Goods or something, you know, someone fitting you for a pair of sneaks. You don't look like a rock and roller. That's the thing, right? And and you're the clean cut guy. It's also the case that your spirituality is very important to you. You're a Christian and, and you take it very seriously. You and I have had various conversations about that. And in that context, I, I want to play a little more of May at Last, where Scott and Seth talk about their reaction and your reaction to a moment that changed your life when you learned that your daughter, Hallie, who you mentioned earlier, I had been diagnosed with a mysterious and potentially fatal brain tumor when she was just a very little girl. And then we'll talk about how that experience did change you and change the band and the importance of faith in your work. And also just a little bit about Hallie herself, because, you know, she is just the most amazing girl and her journey has been really, really hard and also really, really inspirational. And so we really got to talk about it. And look, look, Bob, 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 don't cry. Keep it, keep it together over there. I know, I know you well enough to know that all I have to do is mention Hallie's name and you start to get weepy. Uh, so let's, I guess let's get to the sound uh, so we can uh, keep you from blubbering. Uh, let's, let's play that sound from May at Last with Scott and Seth Avett talking about a real turning point for all of you after you learned that Hallie was sick. It's hard to even remember what it was like before that. Everything changed forever. I just remember his, uh, his face um, when he found out. It was, uh, it was tough. You just saw the life fall out of him, man. The whole world just kind of stopped spinning. It just, that's what it felt like. And, um, and then there's like a three week period that's just a blur for all of us uh, where we just kind of took shifts being in the hospital. There were doctors in the room they were matter of fact that she's she's not gonna make it. From that moment on, <clears throat> it, it, well, we were all forced to uh, to decide if if we believed in God or not. You had to because that was the the choice of hope or not. I'm knocking wood over here, but you know the scans keep coming back clear. Right. I mean, how did it change you? You didn't have to decide whether you believed in God. You were a Christian before that happened, I believe. Mm, um, yeah, well, but but I was a um, lapsed. I was lapsed. I was raised Catholic. So is it the case that that's what lit up your spirituality was going through the thing with Hallie? And, and obviously the guys in the band are talking about it too in that clip. That's probably why I wanted to play it. Yeah. We, we were on tour in Europe and it, we were gone for like three weeks. Hallie was... 22 months old. My son, Sam was two months old. You know, Scott had a son, Max, his son was three months old. He had a daughter who was, you know, almost three years old. Like, so we were gone for three weeks and it was a very successful European tour. And we land in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I turn on my phone and 
so excited, you know, to talk to my wife and to get home. And my wife's like, honey, I got to tell you something terrible. You know, Hallie's, Hallie's in the hospital and, you know, she's crying and she's in surgery and it's something with her brain. And, you know, it was just the worst, you know, we were all just all blindsided by it. And it, a couple things, Hallie's in Chapel Hill at the hospital, UNC. We land in Charlotte. Scott lives 40 minutes from the airport, maybe less. I live two and a half hours from the airport. Scott gets in the car with me after not seeing his family for three weeks and comes to the hospital. We get to the hospital. We're out at the waiting room for the pediatric intensive care unit. Hallie's in surgery. You know, I see Melanie. We embrace. Family members are there. Friends are there. I say, can we pray? Can we pray? Like that was like the thing we prayed. I prayed to Jesus Christ. And that was the most pure. I couldn't have told you six hours before that that was in me, you know, and then that was it. I just believed. And there's the Abraham Lincoln quote. I don't know if it's apocryphal, but he says, I found myself in prayer on my knees many times because I had nowhere else to go. Right. And, and it was you know, similar to that, but, but real. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the story. As I said, you know, Hallie's doing great right now. And, and it seems like listening to both of the the brothers and, and listening to you talk about it, you no one ever, no one who's ever had any familiarity with cancer goes through, which I have in my life. And as you know, it's like, you never go through it and say, yeah, you know, there's a bright side to this. There's no fucking bright side. You don't want to have cancer in your family. You just don't. But it is also true that it changes you. And sometimes it does change you in ways that are positive. And it seems like listening to the guys in the band talk and listening to you talk that you think these are not things to be wished for, but that that the spirituality that it brought into your life, your Christianity, the way that it bounded the band, it seems like you guys became, I mean, effectively are now genuinely brothers. I mean, like you were tested in profound ways. And it seems like it's like not again, I won't say it's all, you know, turned out to be for the best. But what I will say is that it does seem as though you find some things in it that have been things that you've grown from and changed from in a way that are genuinely positive and profound. Yeah, you know, it's fun. Like, I just want to connect this to Gildoff for one second. Yeah, please. Watched so much YouTube footage of Gildoff over the past year, and I found clips of him talking about the death of his daughter. Yeah. And him talking about, like, the grief comes at weird moments, and, and sometimes it comes, he'll be at a party or whatever, and he just takes it and just get it. He shoves it down or turns it off like a chip, like a computer, like, a, it's like switching off a switch and... I just found a connection with him just for me, like studying him for a year in that. But it's, it just, I don't know why I brought that up at this moment, but it's like this. I would give anything for her to be, she's 12, right? Like 12 year old girls are, you know, having boyfriends and starting to go to dances. And there's so many things I would wish for her that she'll never, ever experience. And you can't, you can't change what happens to you, but you can be in command of how you deal with it and how you embrace it and how you try to make good out of it. Right. And so one of the blessings of, and I know I'm kind of going in different directions here, but one of the, the things for Hallie that I'm thankful for, well, first of all, you and I, we got goals, we've got deadlines, we've got things we want to do. Hallie's got one job 
That's survive. Yeah. It's the only thing she ever has to do is survive and smile and sing. And in those earliest, darkest days, when I were so young in my life of prayer, the one thing I prayed, because they were saying she'll be trach in a feeding tube the rest of her life. If she survives the cancer, she's not going to mm. make it. She'll never sit up. And I prayed to God, God, I just want her to know joy. Like, I just want her to know joy. And she knows it tenfold. Like that one has been granted tenfold. And then the, the other thing that we've been able to do because of what happened to her is the press on fund and it's raising awareness for pediatric cancer. And we have an organization that has raised millions of dollars and the Avit fans have taken on as their own. And we are seeking outside the box treatments and cures and less toxic experiences for kids. And, you know, it's, there have been blessings through it and, how we could have easily lost her so many points along the way over the past 11 years, we could have lost her. And like you said, I'm going to go pick her up from school in a little bit. Like, you know, she's, she's a fighter, man. She's a scrapper and, and, and she's beautiful. And, We'll, we'll take a break, uh, but I had to go there just because I'll say anybody who wonders whether like Hallie is, uh, she only has one job, which is to stay alive. But I'll tell you, if you go and look on Instagram, look for the account, Finding Feathers 25, okay? That's my wife. That's my wife's Instagram. Yeah. It's essentially Follow all my pictures wife. of Hallie. Is it the reality? Like 90%. It is. And, 90%. and birds. My wife is one of the top birders in the state of North Carolina. I don't want in any way denigrate your wife's birding <laughs> skills, but I have to tell you, as much as the bird photographs are nice, the ones that you really want to look at are the, uh, right. the Hallie pictures. And I, I just, you know, she is not just living, but she shows plenty of joy and she's, she's super, thriving and she's super cute. And, you know, it's a, an adorable thing to watch. We're going to take one more break and we'll be back with more Bob Crawford on Hell and High Water. We are back with Bob Crawford on Hell and High Water. And Bob, uh, just like we kicked off the show with a new version of an old song, Biko, I want to start off this last part of the podcast with another new version of a slightly less old song that connects to a bunch of stuff we've been discussing and more specifically to a person who alongside Bob Geldof, I guess, is sort of the hero of Concerts of Change or at least sort of like human through line who runs through a lot of the story that you tell in the series. So last month, there was a virtual benefit concert organized by the group Global Citizen it was called Stand Up for Ukraine, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But as a part of it, Bono and Edge from U2 released a new acoustic version of the song Walk On from the album All That You Can't Leave Behind. So let's take a listen to the last minute or so of that. Oh, 
normally we don't play things that long, but I knew you would like to hear it. And I knew I'd like to hear it too. So it's interesting, right? I mean, first of all, great to hear those. I'd like, I haven't heard Bono sing in a while and his voice, which was kind of fucked at the end of the last tour sounds great now, right? I mean, like the rest has been great for you. He hasn't really been singing for three years. And second, let's talk about stand up for Ukraine. So an entirely virtual event, it got some very big acts involved besides those guys from U2. You got Billie Eilish and, and Madonna, Katy Perry, Elton John, Springsteen, a whole bunch of people. And they raised, they say, something like $10 billion for Ukrainian refugees, which is, of course, like awesome and impressive. But I have to say, Bob, like ever since the war started, I've been wondering, you know, when we were going to see someone announce a giant Live Aid style concert, like, you know, an actual concert in an actual stadium somewhere to raise money for the refugees, but it hasn't happened and it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And I I just can't help but wonder if you're surprised by that or do you think we're sort of past that kind of thing now in some way? I think we're past that. I think technology has changed and it's a matter of somehow somebody marshalling the technology of the moment to do something that cuts through. Like Stand Up Ukraine was, it's really interesting and it was like, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe a really unique part of it is that these bands were like using their own social media platforms. We're kind of broadcasting on their own thing. Yep. I think that I think is really interesting, an interesting aspect of this. And right, Guildoff will be the first to tell you concert ain't going to do it. It's just, no, the time has passed. It's, it's gone. It's over. And I believe that what made Live Aid so unique in that time period that we were talking about was this convergence of, of cause and technology and music at the same time. So we're in a different moment, right? You too can sell out an arena tomorrow. Springsteen can sell out an arena tomorrow, but I think we're past the, well, I guess Post Malone's probably selling out arenas and BTS is, but we seem to be in a different moment because we're also fractured, right? Right. And I get to curate what I want to listen to and watch and you get to curate, you know, and so on and so forth. So I mentioned earlier that we talked about Sun City, which is the subject of the fourth episode of Conscious of Change that's dropping on the same day as this podcast. You know, we had little Stephen on Stephen Van Zandt on Hell and High Water last fall when his memoir came out. And we talked a lot about that song, Sun City, and his involvement in the fight against apartheid in the 80s. And I don't want to replow old ground too much for all the loyal listeners of this podcast. But I will say that Sun City was both an outgrowth of Band-Aid and Live-Aid. You know, it was focused on a thing in Africa and, you know, a lot of the same artists were involved, including Bono, but it was also a departure. You know, Sun City wasn't about raising money for a humanitarian cause like famine relief. It was straight up political and Steve made no bones about the goal. We're trying to take down an oppressive government. This is a more radical kind of confrontational kind of song. I think of all these things, it's actually the best of the songs. It's a super, super strong. It's also, no doubt. it's also diverse in a way that, you know, Live Aid and Band-Aid and all those things got criticism for not having enough black artists. And Steven was like, I'm bringing in Curtis Blow and Africa Bombada and Run DMC, who are going to make this thing look more like what we should look like in this moment. I mean, it is the best song, right? And I think in some ways no, had the most no actual, had the most actual tangible effect on the world. There's no doubt. And, and it led to doing what it set out to do. Like you can make an argument that they didn't feed everybody in Ethiopia with Live Aid 
And I would make an argument, which we might hear in a little bit, that this actually what happened at Live Aid with Geldof and Bono is connected to what happened in the early 2000s. And they actually had a bigger impact than we think they had. Yes. But as far as like in the moment, creating a creative project that could make an impact, Sun City you know, had a lot of power and it really did help to bringing, you know, in some way that creative boycott of South Africa did help to bring down apartheid. Yeah. I mean, it made the ridiculousness of the constructive engagement policy. It made it a cause for college students like, like us, you know, and the notion of divestment as being an, an issue that you rallied around it. It was already out there, but the song rallied and, and galvanized people in a pretty profound way. And that was when the breakthrough happened. Not, not cause and effect from the song, but the timing of it, it was part of a moment when- Critical mass. Critical mass. And again, coming back to our theme of just how fucking fast all this stuff happened. I mean, Sun City comes out in the fall of 85. It's just like three months after Live Aid and amid, you know, all of the other stars in the mix, you know, Dylan and Springsteen, Lou Reed and Jackson Brown, there's Bonham again. He's like, you know, this thing's taken off like a rocket over the course of the last year. And already this young lead singer of U2 is like a staple, these kinds of things and his involvement in political and humanitarian causes would only grow to the point where it becomes like a huge part of his life and his identity. And it's also the subject of the last episode of Constant of Change, which uh, we don't want to spoil it too much because it's not out yet. It's going to be a few more weeks before it comes out, but we got to talk about it some, Bob. And I mean, I mean, look, let's just start here with your quest to interview Bono. I know he was your great white whale. He was the the quest that I hope I, I played a small part in this, you very did. small. Bob, you were like, we, I can't do this conscious of change thing without getting Bono. And eventually right. you were able to get him. We'll hear a little bit of that in a second. But tell me why. Why was he the great white whale for you? How do you paint him in the history you're trying to tell in conscious of change, which again, the sixth episode is all about him. Yeah, there are a couple threads that tie all of this together and run through every episode in one way or another. One is the fact that Every event that happened built on and in some way corrected the mistakes of the one that came before. George Harrison, concert for Bangladesh. He doesn't name UNICEF as the benefactor until, <laughs> until right at the very end of the $12 million that was raised from the concert, the film, and the album. $10 million is tied up in a court mm. battle with the IRS mm. for over 10 years. Mm. So then let's just jump to Band-Aid. Gildoff calls George Harrison. George Harrison says, get a good accountant, get a good lawyer. Yeah. You know, we get to, do they know it's Christmas and we are the world and artists are showing up and they're signing releases. <laughs> you know, right. like all this stuff right. is just taken care of. But then the other thread is Bono. Now, you 2 did play some anti-apartheid gigs locally in London for Amnesty International in the yeah. early 80s. But you hear he is kind of like the younger brother type to Bob Gildoff for Do They Know It's Christmas. Gildoff kind of pulls him into this world, you know, knowingly, consciously or, or unconsciously. Well, he definitely consciously pulled in you 2 yeah. yeah. But what does Bono do weeks after Live Aid? Something happens in Bono's life. You know, they have this Live Aid performance that the band is pissed off at him at first. Seems like it was a complete disaster. Turns out it wasn't. But Bono and his wife, Allie, go to Ethiopia and they work in a feeding camp, 
anonymously for six weeks. They say, is this something we want to do with the rest of our lives? And they go. So pause on that for a second, Bob. Yeah. I want to play it because you mentioned it. So let's play it. We'll hear Bob from Constant Change talking about that in his interview with Bob Crawford, talking about what that meant to him. We felt very privileged to be able to visit and, and work with these extraordinary people in the Wallow province of Ethiopia. But it was also a, an orphanage, really. We were in charge of the kids. I, I was known as Dr. Good Morning or the girl with a beard because I had two earrings and uh, this caused great amusement amongst the children. It was a trip that changed both of our lives. And Bob, you were going to talk about that. It did change sure. both their lives and talk about how it did. Well, so this is a different level of commitment. If you ask me and my band, you know, hey, do you want to want to play at this benefit concert where you'll be seen by 2 billion people? Oh, yeah, sure. Go play 17 minutes and be seen by two. That's going to be good for the cause, but that's that's good for us. But then how about this? How about you and your wife go to a feeding camp, you know, in the midst of one of the greatest human disasters, tragedies in the 20th century, and you give of yourself anonymously, egolessly for six weeks. And so Bono, you know, he comes back and he's there for Sun City. He's there for Amnesty International. And as we'll see, you know, starting in the mid 90s, he finds this whole new level of artist humanitarianism. You know, another big theme of, of this whole series, it's the harnessing of the currency of celebrity, right? Right. Which in the 80s, John, if you were Jack Nicholson or Madonna mm. or Don Johnson, yeah. because of cable television and, you know, the 57 channels and nothing's on and the blockbuster movies and right. the multi-platinum, which we know multi-platinum, so that's a new thing for the 80s. And you have Ronald Reagan, the movie star president. I mean, celebrity carried so much more and they had so much of a broader reach back then than I would argue they do today because yeah. people were less fractured. Yep. Bono finds himself in the midst of all of that and with a true heart to do good. And I think I would make that argument for Gildoff. His celebrity was never as big as Bono's would become, but it's the idea that, Hey, I'm going to use this currency I have, right. And I'm going to do something good with it because I've learned that life is more than just being a celebrity. I mean, you said he has true heart. And I think part of the reason why, you know, I wanted to talk about him at some length in this, because we just had come out talking about you and Hallie and your faith. The thing about you two is that I have always found it totally appealing because I'm a sucker for idealism and earnestness and heart on your sleeve. They're uncool. They were the biggest rock band in the world and they were always totally fucking uncool. They would make fun of themselves throughout about like, we're not fucking cool. We're like, and you bottle got made fun of for being too earnest and too messianic, which we'll talk about also in a second. But that earnestness comes out of their Christian faith. There are a lot of U2 fans who say, yeah, they're Christians. You know, there's some Christian themes or whatever. 
Bono is a really religious guy. I mean, he is a religious guy. He knows the Bible better than most priests you'll meet. He can recite it. He's deep, deep in that spirituality. And you, if you want to go poke around the internet, you can get into some deep shit with Bono talking about Jesus. I mean, there's he's some a, great stuff with David Taylor uh, yes. and Bono and Eugene Peterson. And yeah, yeah. He's a deeply spiritual guy. And if you go through all the YouTube music and really try to take a look for all the Bible references, it's incredible how much of their music is shot through with references to scripture and spirituality. And I think that's a huge part of the true heart that you shorthanded is what's motivating him throughout a lot of this is his faith, right? I think it has to be part of why you have a connection there, right? I think you admire him pretty profoundly. And I think part of it is that there's, you sense the same thing is in the middle of what's driving him as some piece of you. There's no doubt about that. And what really makes Bono unique and his faith unique is that when we get closer to the year 2000, he becomes part of a movement that's called Jubilee 2000. Right. And I don't want to rush ahead here, John, but this was a coalition of evangelicals, Catholics, left-wing activists, really a unique joining of these different groups that probably would never have anything to do with each other today. But the whole point was in the Bible, there's this notion of Jubilee and it's at some point the debts are relieved, right? The prisoners are free. Debts are relieved. We start over. And so the campaign was let's take these African nations who have accrued all of this debt throughout the Cold War. To their colonial masters who saddled them with that debt in order to keep them in shackles, yes. And let's just, let's just call it even, man. Yes. Let's just call it even. This group sought him out and, and said, you need to be the voice of this or one of the voices of this. And, right. and it was like the man and his moment, like the right man in the right moment. And then the work began, right. which we can talk about. Right. I was going to say the two things about Bono. One, you know, the earnestness and the, the sentimentality and the idealism and the altruism, all that is all rooted in the faith. And then there's the other thing. Bono's really fucking smart. He's got that heart and he's also really smart. Like if you put him in almost any profession, he'd be at the top of that profession. And th- right. I think also those two things come together to the thing you're talking about, which is Jubilee 2000. Why is it powerful? Because he makes an economic argument. He's not like, hey, this is about charity. He's like, this is right. Good economics. You know, he, he goes to he, school essentially to learn the arguments, to learn the arguments and then puts together in a classic entrepreneurial fashion, builds these organizations. He starts the one campaign. He starts data, a Washington DC lobbying organization to make these cases. He becomes a politician in a lot of ways, but smarter than most of the politicians and also more open hearted, right? Because his thing was always like, I will take a meeting with anybody who wants to alleviate third world debt, cure AIDS in Africa. Anybody who wants to do that, I don't give a shit. You can be Jesse Helms. You can be the most liberal, most conservative. I don't care. I just want to get this done. And man, did he take a lot of shit for that from the left and from the right. And yet one of the great accomplishments of the Bush administration was what they did on AIDS in Africa. Bono Pepfar. had to play a huge part in that. Without a doubt. You know, what's really interesting about all this, John, is that if you're trying to to do something like forgive debt in Congress, like in the year 2000, 2001, 2002, you needed to talk to conservatives. And because Bono was so equipped with knowing scripture, believing scripture, he could sit down with Jesse Helms and speak his language. 
and George W. Bush. W. Bush, yeah. And speak yeah. their language. But, you yeah. know, I, I want to just talk for a second about the criticism that he received. And Bob Gildoff received a tremendous amount of criticism. You know, he was dealing with a dictator in Ethiopia who was the cause of the famine. Right. But Gildoff went and dealt with him and smiled with him and laughed with him at times. There's a famous Spin Magazine article. Robert Keating in 1986 wrote this expose takedown of Gildoff about Live Aid mm -hmm. and that the money really did nothing but empower the brutal dictator Mengistu in Ethiopia. Right. But Gildoff will tell you, I will shake hands with the devil on my right and on my left to feed the people that need it to get this. So he would give food for the starving masses to soldiers, to Ethiopian soldiers yeah. to get permission and open up an area where he could deliver aid. So this criticism, you know, that Bono would experience, you know, I look at Live Aid and that effort and I connect it to PEPFAR and to one and to data. Sure. We don't want to judge the success of feeding the Ethiopian refugees just on what happened in 85 and 86. Right, of course. We need to yep. look at this because what PEPFAR did is there was a pandemic going on in Africa. And I think it was $80 million that went to creating a medical infrastructure yeah. in Africa. And it saved millions and millions and millions of lives. Yes. And to this day, George W. Bush tells anybody he can reach. He says the thing he was most proud of, of his eight years in the White House was what he did for AIDS in Africa with that program. Yeah. No, if, if a bass player from a two-bit Americana band can get an interview with George W. Bush, it's because he wants to talk about the things <laughs> that George W. Bush really cares about. Yeah, a guy who's actually a jazz guitar player pretending to be a bass player is really the trick there. Right. Just, just to remember from earlier, I'll, I'll play the last piece of Bono sound and we'll bring this to a, an exalted conclusion because, okay. because here is Bono talking to you. And it's a thing I've heard him talk about before. Let's be clear. There's no ambiguity about the fact that Bono is enormously proud of having built one. He thinks he's done a lot of good on these things. The man does not lack ego and he's not minimizing the contributions that he's made. But here he is. Bono knows he gets some criticism for this. And this is a place in your interview with him for Concert of Change where he kind of tries to reckon with that. I genuinely look forward to the day where I am just a, a footnote in their history. You know, the criticisms. I mean, I, honestly, there's... A, I feel a lot of the criticisms of us were valid. You know, there is such a thing as white messiah syndrome. And in the early days of data and one and, uh, and in the worst years of the AIDS crisis, we did, you know, raise the alarm. We also contributed to an ongoing problem of how Africa is perceived. I think we have to accept some responsibility for that. And it's hard. It's hard, especially for middle class, um, the middle class in these African countries and just constantly being portrayed as the, the global face of poverty. You have an interview in that episode with uh, a woman who works with one. At the very top of the interview, she's like, I fucking hated Live Aid and Band-Aid and, <laughs> and, and the whole notion that Africa is all one place. Africans hate being talked about about Africa. We're not Africa. We're all these different places. And they're like sub-Saharan Africa, Northern Africa. Like, there's no, it's just like, it's a crazy thing to consider Africa, Africa with a capital A. And Bono's kind of addressing that there and kind of going, you know, by trying to raise all this awareness, 
we also kind of stigmatized millions and millions of Africans who are not what you think of when you think of poverty-stricken, famine-stricken Africa. And more and more, one is becoming an African organization and yes. African-run, African-led. And that's Bono's goal is to someday, you know, it's he's a footnote. And Edith Jabuno is who you're talking about. Yeah. And she was the first African hire by one. And she's Nigerian. And they hired and they're like, well, you come to London, you come to DC. She's like, no, I think I'm going to stay in Nigeria. And then she brought them to Nigeria and they did a listening tour and they heard some tough stuff. They would go into communities that were, they're like, listen, you can't just knock on our door and take a picture of our kids, you know, go down a country road in Africa and take a picture of somebody's kids. We don't need a school here. We need electricity here. They need a hospital over there. Don't come in and tell us what you're going to build here. You know, we need to have a say in this. And it just feels like the ability to learn and take criticism, which Bono obviously has, that's how you grow as a person. And that's how your contribution becomes more powerful and lasting. It is true that in some ways, what made a lot of these things that you chronicle in Concerts of Change so powerful was that they were all uncool. They were so earnest. All of these artists who in those moments decided that it's kind of not fashionable but they all took the plunge. And and I think it's kind of the thing that unites them all. It's the Geldof story of I'm going to write a, this Christmas song is going to be all full of cliches because it's a Christmas song. It's not going to be a punk song. It's going to be a Christmas song. And it's going to have these lines you would never sing otherwise, right? So like, I just am curious about what you think you've learned about it all, having done the deep dive and the research on these things and, and what, you know, if there are big takeaways from all the time you spend with it and all the music you listen to and all the stories you've compiled in this brilliant series, Constant Change, which everyone should listen to on Sirius. It's Sirius XM volume channel 106 and also available on the SXM app on demand. We can't repeat it enough times because you're going to want to listen to this series. Like I said, number four comes out today. If you're getting this podcast when it drops and they got two more, they come out at every two week interval. So you get episode five and episode six. You want to hear Concerts of Change, the soundtrack of human rights, because if you do listen to it and you are imparted with all the wisdom that Bob has accumulated and you get to listen to all this stuff, this is the enlightenment that will come upon. Bob, what is it? The enlightenment is what? It is two things. It is that... Musicians in the later part of the 20th century, after, you know, the 60s, the song became secondary, right? It was the event and it was utilizing the changing technology of the 1980s and the rising currency of celebrity for artists to make change. It wasn't so much about the song in particular, even if it was, do they know it's Christmas? It wasn't really about the song. It was about the celebrity because of MTV and because of the more visibility of so many artists and entertainers and the business booming. So that's one thing. And about Bono in particular, if you look at how Bono evolved as a person and as an artist and as a humanitarian, in the 2000s, when he begins to lobby Congress first for debt relief, then for AIDS relief for Africa, he goes to D.C. like 18 times in one year. He doesn't play a song. It's about lobbying. And it's almost like the, the musician Bono, it was just the music and the celebrity carried him open the door to the hallways and the offices of so many Republican congressmen and women. We think of like 
Bob Dylan and the 60s and anti-Vietnam. And that moment, it's counterculture. It's very liberal, extreme progressive to its extreme. It's almost like anarchy. But the way Bono did it and accomplished the most was building on what had happened in the 80s and 90s and doing it in a very conservative way way. He entered the establishment and he played in the realm of the establishment. So those are my takeaways. And if you can produce a six part series and say, I don't think I've scratched the surface. Uh, Well, if you've produced a six part series and you don't think you've scratched the surface, it means either there's a lot more to cover or you're mentally ill. And I'm going to leave that up to our listeners. A little both. (laughs) Yes, that's a false binary right there. It could be both. Um, Bob Crawford, you are awesome. And I don't believe mentally ill except on the margins. And um, (laughs) if you like this kind of shit, if you are a person who likes the nexus of music and culture and politics and spirituality and all the rest of it. Like who has a life that they want to live that does is interested in that stuff? Show me someone who's not interested in those things, Bob. I'll tell you someone who I'm not interested in having dinner with. That's what I would say. Well, there's probably a few out there. Yeah, like I said, not coming to my house anytime soon. But you're always invited here, Bob. So stop by sometime soon. I'll be there in November when we play in your area. All right, bro. Love you. Love you too. Thank you so much, John Hallman. Hell and I Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Bob Crawford for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and I Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein, who you met at the top, is, we'll say again, a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Pierre Benime engineered the podcast. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And the one and only, the truth, the light, the answer, the question, Marshall Eisen, he is our executive producer. 